0: Hey, 26er family, welcome to the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delisha, and this episode features Camille joseph varlat Camille is a crisis and risk management expert and is a founding partner and chief operating officer of the law firm, Bradford Edwards, and Varlac LLP. Originally from Trinidad and Tobago, Camille and her mother settled in Inglewood Cliffs, New Jersey with the family that sponsored their U.S. residency until her mother seized an opportunity to enroll in a nursing program in Rochester, New York. Now, when it was time for college, Camille opted to attend the university at Buffalo, mainly because she felt the need to remain close to her nuclear family for reasons many of us can relate to. She would later attend Brooklyn Law School and started her legal career as an assistant DA in Kings County, a job which she loved and actually feels she left prematurely. But since then, Camille has picked up a number of notable professional experiences, including returning to New York's unified court system and working as chief risk officer for the New York State Executive Chamber. Most recently, she was a member of the New York State COVID-19 Task Force and launched her law firm alongside her co-founder, in the middle of the pandemic. Needless to say, Camille loves a challenge and she thrives in the midst of catastrophe. But such demanding work comes at a cost. And as a wife and a mother, it's been a lot to juggle. During our conversation, Camille was very candid about the challenges along the way. But just like a 26er, she's remained committed to excellence through it all. So here's her story. Camille, welcome to the December 26th podcast.
1: How are you? I am doing well. A little wet, but I'm I'm doing well. Happy conversation.
0: Yeah, we were talking about the crazy weather outside. Um, And I I mean, I don't know if it's climate change. And people who listen to the show regularly know that Hurricane Ida, I dealt with the flooding and all that. So now I have a bit of a a paranoia. Every time they send those flash flood warnings, I'm like, oh, God, is this the big one Um, again? But here we are. We made it on the show. We did. So I can't tell you how excited I am to talk to you, a fellow female attorney. Um it's not often that I get to do
1: that in this space
0: so I'm looking forward to this conversation.
1: I've actually never done anything like this before so I'm I'm a little apprehensive but I'm I'm sure you'll you'll get me through it but I'm I'm excited to have the conversation as well. I'm trying to be spontaneous and just take things as they come so I'm I'm really excited for the opportunity to talk to you.
0: Well this is what I usually tell people before we press record but I'm going to say it anyway on. Just treat it like brunch, just having a nice conversation. It's not live. Right. Editing is, is magic if it needs to be. So I always tell people, like, you know, just have a good time. Don't think about it as like, this is a recorded conversation.
1: Okay. No problem.
0: All right. Let's get into it. Who is Camille Joseph Varlak?
1: You know, it's interesting that you say that. I, I think I've come to a place in my life where I own my story more than I have in the past. So mm. if I had to sum it up in a couple of words, I would say, Immigrant, wife, mother, crisis manager, and attorney. I think I think those are the words that would sort of sum up, you know, the pieces of my life that are most important to me.
0: So I think being a, a wife and a mom, you can be a crisis manager without moving into that space from a career perspective. Uh, but we will, we will get there and, and figure out how you got into, into that field. Uh, but talk to me about a little bit more about being an immigrant and your origin story coming here.
1: Sure. So I'm actually originally from Trinidad and Tobago. Um, I was was born there. My mother came here and brought me as a baby and then went back. Um, and then she moved back to New York. Uh, so we actually not even in New York. We lived in Inglewood Cliffs, New Jersey, actually. Um, you know, those were the days when you needed a family to sponsor you. And so we lived with a family that sponsored us in Inglewood Cliffs my mother met another immigrant who told her about a nursing program that was located in Rochester, New York, that if you got into the program, um you didn't have to pay for it. And so she picked me up and she relocated to Rochester, um where I watched her sort of work incredibly hard and I'm sure my mother will come back, will you know, will will be brought back up in this conversation because she's my everything, but um I moved to Rochester, New York and um you know, I would be at home while she was at school and she was working and, you know, coming full circle. She is now the chairperson of the entire healthcare program for, for the same program that sort of has, has been the foundation for her life in the United States. So, um, you know, I'm not sure how much you know about Rochester, New York, but it is a, it's a very different kind of place. It's, it's Mm -hmm. only going down South. uh, In in many instances, Um, it was a little challenging growing up there. Um, I I found um that being an immigrant in a place where it was predominantly African American was challenging. There was a lot of teasing. I had a green card, who else had a green card? It was like, you know, most um immigrants end up sort of in New York City, particularly West Indians. And so it was it was definitely a challenge growing up. Um and I didn't really appreciate that journey and um the 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 distinction of it that made me special. Until, you know, not too long ago, you know, within the last five to 10 years, um, you know, when I when I, I grew up, I, I went to college and that was the first time that I had the opportunity to meet many other individuals who were from the West Indies. And at that point, I felt like a fraud. Right. Because I didn't grow up having gone back to the West Indies and I didn't know all of the names for the foods and all the nicknames and the music. And so, you know, in that instance, I, I really sort of shrunk into myself a little bit. And again, it wasn't until much later that I sort of took ownership of that.
0: And I, I definitely want to pause there as the daughter of a Jamaican parent. And when you meet people who are West Indian, right, then it becomes a conversation of like, how often do you go back? And then, you know, I, I have a similar story where I'm like, well, I've actually never been. And, you know, people are shocked by that you know, because my, you know, my parents divorced as well. So Mm -hmm. I was more Americanized because I grew up with my mom. So I had cultural connection, but I was not enmeshed in a West Indian home. And there is a judgment from people, your fellow Caribbean folks who are fully in the world. They look at you like, I don't even know what to call it, like some kind of traitor because you are not as connected. And it's only by circumstance. It's not for lack of interest. It's just by, by circumstance So for you, like growing up with that experience, did it drive you to say, okay, at some point, I want to find the connection,
1: I want to lean into it in some way. You know, it's it's interesting. So on the on the one hand, I wasn't immersed in the culture in the way that perhaps if I had grown up in New York City, I would have been. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, I very much was brought up in the culture. So my grandfather, my mother's father, is a Baptist minister, and so certain things in terms of carnival and you know, partying and things of that nature. I mean, they, they, that was not how she was brought up and she grew up in the islands. Right. So it was very much about, it was, you know, there is a, there is sort of an eliteness that comes from, from being from a religious family where it was like my grandfather and six of his brothers were all Baptist ministers. So, you know, we were brought up very strict going to church. You, you, my mother would dress me up in play clothes to send me outside. And I'm like, what am I supposed to do with with this ensemble that you put together. Um, so, so there was very much that. We had the food, right? My mother would, you know, make roti and curry chicken and all of all of those things. So I had that aspect of it. For me, it was very much the social component, right? Mm. Not familiar with Calypso. Never had, I mean, even to this date, I have been to one West Indian Day Parade in New York and that was really related to work. I didn't actually even see the parade. Other than that, I've never been to Carnival. Um, And so, you know, it was just, it was just a really interesting journey. And and that was, that was a a challenge for me. And I think I actually lost track of what your initial question was as I, as I went down this path, but it was, it was, it was just very interesting that in, in the, on the one hand, I grew up very much in the West Indian way and, you know, it was really all the superficial stuff. And so I went to college, I actually joined the Caribbean Students Association and, you know, immediately felt like a fraud because again, these people had, they had accents. My mother always discouraged us using any sort of accents. Um, And so it it was interesting. But again, it wasn't until I moved to New York City and I looked back at the totality of my life and I could reflect on, you know, the struggle that it is when you're an immigrant and you're in a place where you don't know anyone and you have to learn things and you've got to figure it out. And that is the component of it that I think I have brought with me. And um, the part of my journey that really resonates. Do you think it was a specific incident
0: that flipped that switch for you to say, this is something special, this, this makes me unique uh, and and these are positive benefits, or was that an evolution over time?
1: I think, I think that there was sort of an, there was definitely, a, I think a little bit of an evolution over time, but I think for me, when I, when I started to really own it was, um, so I, I told you that my mother you know, had had attended this nursing program. She then became the healthcare chairperson, and they asked me to come and be a graduation speaker. Um, and so I went back, and I had to write this speech. And I am standing there, and it's a program for individuals who are going back to school, never finished their undergraduate degree, or, or you know, so these are individuals that have gone through challenges. They've got families, and as I was speaking to them, I, you know, I opened my speech by saying, "I know." I know perhaps more than many other speakers that you have heard from what it means to sit in your seat because I've literally been there, right? I sat in the hallways while my mother was in class, right? So I understand what you have had to go through and the, the struggles that you've had to juggle to be here. And in that moment, you know, not only did I fully appreciate everything that my mother had done for me. But I understood the beauty of her story and, and the impact that it had on my life and my work ethic and, you know, my ability to really believe that anything can be done and anything can be accomplished if you're willing to work hard enough for it. So I think I would pinpoint it to that
0: moment. Mm, that's good. So what was your career aspiration, you know, seeing your mom in the healthcare field, we have a running joke on this show that when you are the child of an immigrant or immigrant parents, there's only a couple of different tracks. You can really take right. There's, there's no spreading your wings, trying to be all creative and all of that. But for you, what were your goals?
1: So I, uh, you know, I, I joke around, and my my husband teases me all the time because he says I always use words and phrases that nobody actually uses. That I sort of learned how to be an American by watching TV, and so I used to watch Perry Mason when I was when I was a kid, and um, and I fell in love with the drama of the courtroom you know, being in front of a judge, talking to a journey, to, to a jury, but the, the gotcha moment. And so from the age of seven, I knew that I wanted to be a lawyer and I never considered being anything else. I spoke to a bunch of students yesterday and I said to them, you know, in hindsight, I don't know that that was the right way to proceed. It worked out for me, but you know, they should, they should think about and consider other things. But for me, I set my sights on that and I never looked back. I, I knew that I wanted to be a prosecutor. Because I wanted to be in the courtroom, um, I knew that I wanted to, you know, you know this notion of justice was very important to me. And so the idea that you have individuals in society who have been wronged in some way and that you can bring them a modicum of justice by prosecuting these cases, there was something about that that really spoke to me. So, you know, all of my extracurricular activities were always around speech and debate activities and mock trial and, and things of that nature. I, I really never considered doing anything else. Went to um, the University of Buffalo. I, I wanted to go to a really big school, but I didn't want to go very far because I was sheltered um, and continued to do things there. I took paralegal certification courses. I interned with judges and, and it just sort of solidified for me that, that that was where I wanted to be and that's what I wanted to do. Um, and then moved to New York City to go to law school, where I, you know, participated in report court competitions and, um, you know, just sort of continued on that trajectory and um, took trial at with uh, the then district attorney Charles Hines. And when I graduated, I, I applied and was able to get a job there.
0: So going back to going to college, and it's interesting that you say that you actually wanted to stay close, because oftentimes when people grow up. Uh, with rooted and grounded in church, right? In the faith and a strict structured environment that could really go either way, right? In some instances, folks are like, I wanna get as far away from here as possible. Like, I I just need to spread my wings. But even going to school in state, do you feel like you blossomed in any way or found yourself um, or a version of yourself that may have been different than what you had growing up in such a strict environment?
1: You know, for me, the reason that I wanted to stay close was because I knew my mother needed me to stay close. Mm. Um, I, when I left for school, I I would, I would say, and I think she would probably say, I don't know that she ever recovered from that. Um, I very much became almost a co-parent in our household. So it's me. I have a younger sister. She's three and a half years younger than me. And then um, my mother sort of adopted a nephew who was three and a half years younger than my sister. So it was three of us. It was just my mom. And, you know, everything from she bought a barbecue grill and I would be the one to put it together to she couldn't make it to my sister's parent teacher conferences. So I would sort of sit in and report back. Um, So when I left for school, I knew that it was hard. And, you know, I, I couldn't imagine leaving her in a situation where I wasn't close. So in terms of, of spreading my wings and the growth, I think going to a large university helped me with that. I mean, I was unleashed. First of all, when I went to college, I took every worldly possession. I took my books. I took my musical costumes. I took my sheets. I took glasses. It was like I was never, I was never <laughs> going home. It was, it was really kind of crazy in hindsight. Every book that i had ever read, I packed it all up, cleared out my room, and, and took it all to college. Um, and I will say that even when I was in college, I really didn't go back home very often. I, I always found opportunities to work through the winter break or the summer breaks or, or whatever the case may be. But, you know, the University of Buffalo and, and full disclosure, it's a its a state school. It's It's part of the State University of New York. And I'm a trustee for the State University of New York. So I'm very biased, was just such an incredible experience in terms of the amount of people that I met from around the world, the different options. I and mean, even in hindsight, I don't know that I took advantage of it as much as I as I could have. Um, but it, it did really allow me to sort of spread my wings. And I always knew I was going to the city to go to grad school. There was, there was never a thought. In my mind, I didn't want to hear about another Lilac Festival. I was like, I need to go where there's national and international news that's the focus. And I really just wanted to be in the middle of everything. So-
0: So, you know, there's, there's one thing I want to touch on here because, you know, we're in this whole self-care sort of era right now, mental health, getting therapy, sort of unpacking your baggage. And one thing that comes up often, I think in that narrative is Black women acknowledging their own humanity and also this sort of study of pathologies and how we grew up. And there are many stories like yours the oldest sibling who takes on a parental and in some ways a spousal role and how they weren't given, and I'm talking about me too, as the oldest sibling, like we weren't given the opportunity to just be a kid. And because of that, we're perfectionists, we're overachievers, um, but it's always framed in a, in a sort of negative light. Do you think that it had a negative impact on you at all being placed in that role where you're essentially responsible for two other humans who are younger than you?
1: Yeah. I do and it, and it it actually hurts a little bit to say that because I don't like to be at all critical of my mother um considering I I know how much she sacrificed for me but I do think that there were instances where I needed to feel pain or I had been hurt in some way and you know there were times that I tried to have that conversation with her and I could see that she was either overwhelmed or didn't really know what to do or how to help me. And I would just immediately say, but you know what? I'm fine. It's, it's okay. It's not a problem because I was just very concerned about her. And I knew that she worked, you know, 16 hour days, all of, all of that for years um, to take care of us. And I didn't want to be a burden to her. And so what that has created, you know, in me as an adult is, you know, on the one hand, when dealing with my kids, there are a lot of things that I didn't let them see, right? I was very aware of our financial position um, as, as the eldest child in the house. These kids don't even, they barely know the value of a dollar. I mean, because I just—I have just completely shielded them from understanding what it takes for certain things to happen. So, you know, we, we started to, I recognized that in myself years ago, and, and I, you know, started to have those conversations but I never wanted them to feel that struggle because I just remember what that burden felt like. I I also think that I am not good at self-care at all. I Mm -hmm. just, I hear it. I understand the importance of it. I would have a conversation with a good girlfriend and talk to her about taking care of herself. And I can give the best advice in the world, but in terms of of what I do for myself, i I don't really focus on that and um and I, I almost feel like it's a weakness um to do that. so it's it's not something I love to do for myself but so so, I definitely think it's it has had an impact that was not necessarily a positive one
0: yeah, and and this is a conversation you know we've had on the show, um particularly in black culture, where we don't want to talk about what may have been a shortcoming or something that negatively impacted us because we are we revere and have such honor for our parents and the path that they forged for us to be able to live out our dreams. And I think so. It's 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 doubly difficult. It's difficult on one hand because you're trying to hold in the same space honor and also some pain for what you may not have gotten. Um, and then also I think it's difficult on the self care piece because. What has been modeled for us as Black women often is you rise to the occasion. You get up, you do the job, you do what you have to do to provide for your family, for the betterment of your family. There's no time to be said. There's no time to be hurt. There's no time to be healed. You better say a prayer, go to church on Sunday and be ready for Monday. So many of us were not given the tools to do that
1: at all. Yeah, no, and you know it's interesting that you say that because something that has actually become extraordinarily sort of frustrating and angering for me is is this period of time during the pandemic, mm-hmm. right? You know, every time you pop on social media, you read an article. It's it's all about how you know the struggle of um, you know women having to juggle being at home and having children and working and all of these all of these things. And you know, I I, I want to sort of stand on a mountain and say black people and more importantly, black women have been doing this forever, right? This is, this is our everyday existence. And so, you know, and and I just want there to be a recognition of the fact. And even, you know, in this circumstance, which, which made oftentimes already challenging lives, even more challenging, you know, it's that constant juggling and figuring it out and getting this done um, that I think that we always have to do. And and so, you know, that in, in in conjunction with a lot of other things that have happened over this sort of 18-month period, I think, you know, have and, and the fact that I started a law firm in the middle of this, um, that is that is black-owned, um, has just led me to just in deepen my love for for our people and for what we do and how we overcome and how we get things done. So um you know it, it it is it's been pretty interesting
0: yeah i mean the 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 conversation and i've been sort of having the same conversations behind the scenes with friends like people making it happen is what i saw growing up like through all kinds of circumstances right yes this pandemic a global pandemic and a health crisis that we're still trying to get under control it's unusual times absolutely but the juggling of all the the, the financial uncertainty being unwell, having to raise children, all types of curveballs, circumstances changing, the rug being pulled out from under you. We've lived that as a culture from generation to generation for years. Yeah. Um, absolutely. And I definitely like it's on my list to talk about launching not only a law firm, but a Black owned law firm in, in the middle of a pandemic. We are getting there. Okay. But, but <laughs> taking it back to earlier in your career, I know a lot of people who, really had visions of being a prosecutor, going into law school and coming out of law school. I don't know a lot of people who got into it and actually loved it once they were in it. Yeah. So was it everything you thought it was going to be when you started your career?
1: So I'll tell you that, um, I'll, 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 I'll start with this. Um, when I interviewed for the job, there are several rounds of interviews and one layer of interview was with a boss in one of the department's, African-American man. And he said to me in the conversation, he said, are you going to have a problem prosecuting your brothers and sisters? And I said, absolutely not. Because I am going to look at every instance that is in front of me as if it's a person on both sides of the equation. And I am going to work incredibly hard to do the right thing in all instances. And I was, I think, I, I can be very idealistic. I think I still am idealistic, but there is a purity of heart that's behind that that I actually don't want to let go of. I'm, I'm really resisting becoming a cynical individual. And so I was very fortunate. I mean, there were people that you know came in in my class at the DA's office that may not have had the experience that I did, but I had incredible teachers who taught me how to do things the right way there was a judge. So Brooklyn, Brooklyn is divided into from the, from the prosecutorial perspective, five colored zones. There are some other specialized bureaus, but five colored zones. Each of those zones represents a group of precincts. And so all the cases that come out of the precincts get funneled through and it, and it flows through the court system as well. So I was in the orange zone and I had a judge who was sort of the orange zone judge And I remember walking into the courtroom one day and I was dropping off a file for somebody else. And she called me on the record to ask me about a case that had nothing to do with me. But she's like, you're from the orange zone. So I expect you to figure it out. And I remember thinking to myself, this woman is such a pain in the ass because she was asking me these questions and she was holding my feet to the fire and she was demanding and she was on it. And it wasn't until a few months later that I understood that that's right and that that is in fact what it should be. Because as a prosecutor, you have the right to deprive someone of their liberty. You should be held to the highest possible standard. You should be asked to demonstrate, prove, repeat, turn over, all of all of those things. And I learned that from that judge who I subsequently ended up clerking for. And she's like a mother, sister, best friend. She's all of those things to me now. But Um, you know, I really believed in in the power of what we were doing. So what I started to say, when you first asked me the question I was going to lead with, I remember after I left the DA's office and I left there earlier than I wanted to, I mourned that loss for years. really years. I, I felt as though it was the worst thing I had ever done was leaving the DA's office because i felt like and i and i feel this way about public service generally which is why i've spent most of my career in public service there is no better place to be to have a positive impact on people's lives and it's it's hard to think of it you know you're a prosecutor so you're typically trying to put someone away or in jail or whatever that you're having that positive impact but i remember instances where there was a defendant and and in this particular case if i remember the facts correctly was wearing gray sweatpants, a t-shirt. He was walking down the street. Something looked odd about his gait. It turned out that he had a rifle that was, that was down the leg of his sweatpants. He, you know, the cops start chasing him. He runs into his house He throws himself in his mother's closet. They recover it. Right. So I get this case. And what ends up happening is, you know, the defense attorney brings the mother to the courtroom, brings his pastor to the courtroom, brings a professor from the school that that he had been attending to the courtroom and they had a conversation about what they were trying to do and why he had made these mistakes and all the things they were trying to do to help him turn his life around. And I listened and I don't know that everyone who I worked with would have taken the time to listen and to understand and appreciate what this community was trying to do around this young man. There's another instance that you know always sticks in my mind. In New York, there's something called a car presumption with respect to a firearm. So if you get pulled over, there's a gun in the car, everyone who's in the car can be charged with it. Um, car is stopped because there's a cracked windshield. The young man driving does not have a driver's license. Neither did anybody else in the vehicle. There were four young men in the vehicle. The cops arrest the driver. Um, they do an inventory search, they find a firearm in the trunk of the car. They arrest all of them. The driver pled guilty to the firearm possession at arraignment. I now get the other three defendants. The ballistics report comes back and the gun is the gun is not operable, right? And in New York, the gun is not operable, it's not deemed to be a firearm. So, with respect to the three cases that I had, I was able to dismiss all of those. And there are some prosecutors that would have stopped there. But I went through the extra step of contacting the defense attorney for the young Black man who had pled guilty at arraignments, had the case restored to the calendar so that his plea could be vacated. Because in my mind, I thought to myself, you know, if you're ever stopped again and they they run your record and it comes up that you've previously been convicted for firearms possession, you start to have a different conversation. And sometimes that leads to a different kind of involvement. And those are just two examples of instances where I felt as though, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily want to equate it to color, but I I do want to say that there is a personality um, that goes the extra mile, that takes the extra step, that takes the responsibility very seriously. And I was, I was very glad to have those opportunities and to try to do that while I was there, but it was hard. It was incredibly hard. You know, they hadn't hired a lot of Assistant district attorneys in a while. I think my misdemeanor caseload was 250 cases, which is just not what you're supposed to have. And um, But it was by far one of the most rewarding experiences I ever had. So, and I think often what
0: happens is when you talk to people who do view the job as being a civil servant and looking for those opportunities for rehabilitation and all the things that the justice system should be, often. They're not in the space anymore. They, they speak of being overwhelmed, a ridiculous caseload, all those things. So it's always fighting an uphill battle with respect to institutional change. Yeah. And so you'll have your detractors that say, that's great what you did. But looking at this from an infrastructure perspective and from a societal and organization perspective, is it really sustainable, right? They'll tear the whole system down, right? That that's sort of the, burn it all to the ground. So do you think... That You you had your season, you moved on, but are, do you have a positive outlook for, let's take New York specifically, for the justice system in New York? Because we do have these situations where people want to come and and impact change and they come and go, but what's left is an antiquated system that's not taking the approach that you took.
1: Um, so what I would say is this, I I worked in the criminal justice system at two times in my career. I started off as a prosecutor and I subsequently went back and clerked for a judge, the same judge that I mentioned earlier um, as her principal law attorney for five years. And what I will say is, is that when you have the purview of understanding the volume that the criminal justice system has to deal with on a daily basis, it's almost a miracle that they ever get it right. Mm. There's just so much there and, 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 and it's in every facet of it, right. From, from the arrest all the way to corrections when, when they're incarcerated. I personally tend to think that, you know, while we're trying to make these incremental changes and we're trying to fix this hole, and then we try to run over here and fix this hole, the entire system really needs to be completely blown up. It needs to start from scratch there is systemic racism that is baked into every single facet of the criminal justice system. And it tends to attract in certain roles. And again, when I think of the system, I think of not just, you know, defense attorneys, prosecutors, and judges, I think of court clerks, I think of, you know, police officers, probation officers, corrections officers, you know, the system tends to attract a population that, you know, there are many of them that have very particular views and particularly in an urban center like New York city, they're traditionally going to be dealing with black and brown people. And so, you know, I, 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 I do think that the system can chew people up and spit it out. And you do absolutely find that at the same time, you know, when I came back to Brooklyn to, to work in the system, six years later, many of the individuals I had worked with before they stayed and I'm fortunate to know to know I not a lot of lifetime prosecutors who are of color who have just dedicated their life to that. And you know, i don't I don't think that that's necessarily typical. Um but I do think, you know, from a programmatic perspective, there should be more work done by the government to in, you know to encourage people to stay in public service because you're absolutely right. they They tend to lose a lot of people to that kind of attrition. So how does someone who had such a passion, for
0: being a prosecutor and mourned the departure from the space, end up in risk, corporate governance, crisis management, all those things. What was that trajectory?
1: So, you know, it's, it's interesting because I've, I've gotten, you know, you'll hear me juxtapose, um, who I am today and who I was. Right. And I feel as though I didn't come into my own, again, until very recently. Even when I graduated from college, I still didn't really know who I, uh, who I was. And so um, working as a prosecutor, trying cases, loving it, living the life, thinking it's great, it's hard work, but I'm, I'm not afraid of hard work. And a friend of mine asked me to interview for this other role. Um, and I wasn't going to do it because I was happy with sort of what I was doing. But, you know, what you find when you're in, When you're in that kind of job is, you know, the the career trajectory is is normally sort of limited. You leave, you become a defense attorney, you go, you do, you know, insurance defense work. Um, Maybe you go on the bench, but, you know, there's certain paths that are typical. This was an opportunity to interview for an in-house counsel position, which is just not the kind of opportunity that would normally present itself to a, a, you know, a state prosecutor or a city prosecutor. Um, So I interviewed for the job. I did not expect to get it. And I did. And I remember coming home and and asking my husband, you know, well, what do you think I should do? And to put it in a little perspective, I worked and went to law school. So I I worked full time for four years from eight to five. And I went to law school from six to 10, four days a week for about four years. And um, when I was working, I was a paralegal at a very large media conglomerate. And I was making about $55,000 a year. Pass the bar, graduate past the bar, take a job as a Brooklyn DA, and the starting salary was $45,000. So I actually took a pay cut, <laughs> took a pay cut from being a paralegal to being an attorney. So now I've interviewed for this corporate job, and they say to me, We're gonna pay you $95,000 a year. Mm. So my- was like, what are we even talking about? (laughs) Clearly, like, why is this even a conversation? And so I took it. I took the role. And about three months into it, I regretted it. I mean, I was upset. I was depressed. I was, you know, because nothing that I was doing felt like it was important. You know, on the one hand, it was was sort of a prestigious job. I was working with the board of directors of the company, Fortune 500 company. You know, I had the opportunity to interact with the general counsel and senior executives and all of those things. I was still a fairly young lawyer, but I felt as though nothing was having an impact on people's lives. like it was it was about the bottom line. It was about shareholder this. and i was I was almost angry. And so um you know i I had a friend who was ill, and I was hosting a bone marrow drive for her. and at the Brooklyn. What the Brooklyn the Bedford Stires at YMCA, and so I sent an email to like anyone who had ever emailed me, and I was like looking, you know, for people to come and support the blood drive. And one of the people who responded to the message was this judge, and she was like, you know, is this Camille from the Orange Zone? And I was like, yes, Judge. Hi, it's me. And she was like, well, you know, I'm looking for an attorney. If you know anyone who wants to come and work for me, and so a week later i put in my two weeks notice and i and i left and i went to go work for her and it was they were blown away they could not believe that i would that i would leave this job to go back into public service but there wasn't even a hesitation that is what i needed to do um i remember at that point she was like assigned to the bronx i don't even know if i'd been to the bronx at that point but i was like okay that's fine i'll be there and um, And I ended up working with her for five years. So was not my intention to to work for her for five years? I, I took the job for a couple of reasons. I, I sort of felt when you're in-house, you have outside counsel, right? And I didn't really, and this is the other thing that will periodically come up in this call. I didn't have any mentors. I didn't really have anyone to tell me how these things worked, you know, how to take an opportunity and leverage it. So, um, you know, when I, when I went to work for the judge and we were, we were there, I really wanted to know, you know, could I be a judge, right? It was the only other thing that I really thought about. And so I wanted to get a sense of that, um, and, and wanted to sort of figure out what my, what my next steps were going to be. The market at some point, I'm trying to remember exactly what year it was, but the market at some point had crashed the lawyers. I, I really only anticipated being with her for three years. Um, and then ended up being there for two years longer. But what it allowed me to do, and this is when my maturity started to really kick in, was to try to think proactively about what I wanted as opposed to moving when an opportunity presented itself. And so I actually got a call from the governor's office and they said that they were building this team. And so let let me take a step back. As I thought about what I wanted to do, I started to think about all of those moments that made me feel alive. And so there were two things in particular that stood out to me. One, I remember I was putting a case into the grand jury. So I'm presenting this case to the grand jury. I am I'm cross-examining the defendant who has decided that he wanted to testify. And the exchange went something like, you know, you know the, the wound to the victim was approximately this length. And he countered and said, actually, no, it could only have been this length. And I said, well, why? How do you know that? And he said, because the blade of the knife is only this long, my defense attorney has it in this briefcase. And it was like a what? So <laughs> this like record scratch, hold on. It was like this crazy moment, right? Where the defense attorney pops open the briefcase and he's got the damn weapon that is the subject of this. I mean, it was, it was just a crazy moment. And I just had to say, okay, we're gonna stop your testimony. We're gonna take you out. I'm gonna go get my suit. And I just moved, right, to handle it. No one ever prepared you for anything like that. And then the second thing that I remember is, you know, when I was clerking with the judge, we had a double homicide case. We had had a homicide case where we had two defendants and we had two juries. It was challenging. It was complicated. There were all sorts of issues. And the judge and I had gotten to this place where she'd be sitting up at the bench and I would be sitting a little ways down from her. And I would hear the lawyers making arguments. And before they finished, I would have already pulled up the case. Highlighted the issue, given the answer to the judge. I mean, and and I was just—I love that. Like, I love being in the middle of complete and utter craziness and being the calm, cool, collected one. So I thought to myself, want to go into crisis management? And I think it was actually around the time that Scandal was on, and I was like, okay, I'm not going to run around telling anybody that I want to be in crisis management because they're going to think it's all driven by this damn TV show. Okay. So, I'm sort of trying to figure that out. I'm doing research about crisis management. Everything that's coming to me is about being on a comms team, right? Like crisis communications, PR, that sort of thing, which is not exactly what I was looking for. And so, I got a call from the governor's office and they said, you know, they're building a new team in the governor's office. Would you be interested in it? I said, sure. I went and I interviewed. And essentially, what they were doing is building a team of lawyers that would operate within New York State agencies that would deal with crises right so you, so each lawyer would be embedded in a large state agency something will happen your goal is to help figure out you know how to deal with whatever that issue is that has come up but then the part that i really liked about it was and then figure out how that happened and fix it so that hopefully you don't have a repeat of that so i get recruited i leave with the judge's blessing going to the governor's office. I'm working in, you know, one of their biggest agencies. It's actually a a, a national regulator of banks and insurance companies. And then I sort of immediately start to get promoted. So I'm there. Six months later, I become the deputy of the program. And then um, the woman who had hired me, who was working directly for the governor, uh, she leaves, right? She becomes the first chief risk officer for the state of New York. And then she leaves and I ultimately get promoted into the role. So in that capacity, I was really looking at your traditional pillars of risk, right? Internal controls, audit, um, enterprise risk management, those sorts of things. This, This person comes back to the governor's office. And so we're sort of doing different things now. And one day, you know, she keeps on saying to me as I'm meeting with her on different things, she's like, you know, there's this job. That you know, trying to find someone, haven't found anyone. She keeps bringing it up. She keeps bringing it up. And I said to her, finally, I said, you know, if you want me to apply for the job, just tell me you want me to apply for the job. So she's like, yes, I think you should. So I go up to Albany and I interview for this position, and it turns out to be the most amazing role in the world, right? So I became the deputy director of state operations. That's the technical title. Of course, I kept all the other ones. So I was still special counsel. I was still chief risk officer and I became deputy director of state operations. And what that role is, is you're essentially the deputy chief operating officer for the state. So if you think of the governor as having is as, as like sitting at the parent company, you've got like 60 to 70 subsidiaries, which are all the state agencies that are all charged with doing things from, you know, homeland security to you know, um, presiding over, you know, race tracks and race courses to the Department of Health, all of these agencies. And so the responsibility of that role is to make sure that the trains stay on the track. So you want to make sure that the DMV does what they're supposed to do, the state police do what they're supposed to do. But then when something goes wrong, you're on it. And it was like, it was like lurching from one crisis to the other. It was the absolute Best job ever. I mean, I remember one day we had shark attacks at Jones Beach, which is a state park, right? So you've got state parks that you're dealing with. We had water turbidity issues at a town upstate New York. So you had Department of Health issues. There was a concert that was supposed to be taking place and you had 10,000 drunk fans already there. You have to cancel the concert, but what are you doing with these fans? So it became a state police issue. I mean, it was like every time you turned around, and it was like something going wrong. And I loved it. I mean, I absolutely, absolutely loved it. And so it was, it was, it was just the best. It was like crisis management all, all day long, just running around, putting out fires, figuring this out. I mean, my favorite moment would be I'm on the computer, I'm on a cell phone, I'm on my work phone, dealing with something. My assistant was coming in with somebody else who, I mean, just a line of people with all sorts of other, I mean, it was like, it was like the best job in the world. This
0: sounds like my worst nightmare, but
1: (laughs) I'm glad you found your niche. (laughs) Yes. And I loved it. And so what I appreciated is that was operations, right? It wasn't, it wasn't legal in nature. So the fact that I was a lawyer was helpful because I could bring a different lens to a problem and think about things that a non-lawyer might not. But it just gave me, it was like a playground of problems to deal with that I just had to use common sense, intuition, empathy, you know, all of these other skill sets. And so for me, I just really enjoyed that. And I, and I just realized how much I love being in the middle of a storm. And I mean, even literal storms. Like I remember there was a tornado that hit upstate New York and we would set up war rooms. Like we would know a storm is coming. Like right now with this storm that we have. We would set up war rooms. You've got maps of all the counties in New York state, you know, your floodplains are moving assets. I mean, and then the next day after there'd been damage and hopefully no loss of life, you're hopping in the Tahoe and you're driving out there. Like what's going on here? We need to bring in national grid because they've got to fix these, lo- you know, I mean, just all of that. You're talking to people, you're talking to homeowners, you're running to the target to get water. If you were in a town where they need water, so it was like just the, the whole nature of it, just, I loved it. And, and it was completely, completely unexpected. And so, you know, I, I did that for a while, incredibly difficult job. Um, I did it for over a year and I would split my week. So I would go up to Albany on Sundays, stay there until Wednesday, and then come back down to the city and work the rest of the week. And I mean, I had family. And so there was a lot of sacrifice in that. Um, and so I was presented with an opportunity to be the chief operating officer for a national law firm. And I thought to myself, okay, it's ops that I love. Um, the, the owner of the business made it very clear that he had no interest in actually running the business. So we were at a firm, it was about 80 lawyers, 110 to 120 employees, five offices across the country. He wanted to expand internationally, a lot of big dreams for a firm that was only two years old. And so as you might expect, I get there and I'm thinking that I'm, you know, I think I'm thinking I'm already in the frying pan and, you know, maybe I'm going back on the shelf. I now go directly into the fire because it was the craziest work experience I could possibly imagine. So it ended up just being more crisis management, right? You've got this really strong founder personality. You're trying to deal with that and and his impact on the business, etc. And so it just sort of continued that crisis management theme, and um, you know, so I'm working there. At some point, there's something that happens in February of 2020 when I realize that we're going to have to wind the firm down. Um, and my husband is saying, "Are you paying attention to what's going on?" And I'm like, "My my job is in free fall right now. I really need to focus on this." He's like, "No, you really need to pay attention to what's going on in the world." And um, my son is a um, a moderate persistent asthmatic. Mm-hmm. And it was like, you have a son who has breathing issues. You need to be paying attention. And that's when I really started to realize what was going on with the pandemic. I really was just not focused on it. Um, so that's like February, 2020 leading into March, 2020. And I started getting calls from my old friends who were still working in government. And they're like, Hey, you know, how are things going? What's going on? And I'm like, you know, just dealing with a lot right now, but whatever. They're like, you paying attention to what's going on. I'm like, kind of, I'm, I'm hearing it, but I'm not really focused on it. And then uh, the person who was my former chief of staff when I was in the governor's office called me and said, you know, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to do this to you. He said, but I really need you to come back. Mm-hmm. And um, and then he said the magic words. He said, this is a once in a generation crisis. And I was like, oh yeah, good, go, let's do it. <laughs>
0: I love that you're a person who will run
1: right into catastrophe. <laughs> I was like, pack my bags, I'll be there in 15 minutes. And so, um, you know, I talked to my family about it, and um, you know, my my son said to me, he said he's a really special kid. He said, we well, you know in years in the future when we're talking about the pandemic, won't you want to be able to say that you were able to help? And I was like, man, this kid is amazing. And my daughter, you know, she's my staunch defender. She's like, make sure that they're giving you this. and They're taking care of you and all these other things. And my husband was very resigned because he knew, I think he knew that I was going to find my way back in the middle of this um, because what it required was I had to relocate to Albany. So I moved to Albany for two months and my family stayed in Brooklyn. And this was a 24-7 job and you know, I get emotional talking about my time in the task force. But anyway, I was there. I went up there March 28th of 2020. I didn't come back down until July. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, worked an additional month here, just doing all sorts of things. And it was just, it was it was crisis management at its finest. You're in a circumstance where you have no idea what you're dealing with. I, I always say, I remember when my husband dropped me off at the Albany Hilton and he took very good care of me when I was there and I remember I was going to walk up the hill to the Capitol and you didn't even know if you could breathe the air. You Mm -hmm. just, just didn't know. Um, so anyway, so it was very challenging experience. Um, and I'll remember there was a moment in that, in that experience that stood out to me and it was, um, at some point they said, you know, the department of labor is collapsing under the unemployment claims that are, that are coming in we're just going to give you the entire department and we're just going to need you to fix this. Okay. So, you know, you start understanding what the issues are. It always leads into something else so you're figuring it out. And then one thing that popped up unexpectedly is, you know, we would have to monitor social media because people would be threatening to harm themselves. Um, and, and so we had to set up an alert system where someone would say, saw this on Twitter reach out, try to speak to the person you can't figure it out. Sometimes you are able to call the state police, deploy them to go to a wellness check. I mean, it was, it was just so crazy. And I remember at one point, um, there was a gentleman who lived in, in Harlem who had given the Department of a hard time because, sorry about that, had given the Department of Labor a hard time because he wasn't getting his benefits and threatening to hurt himself and um you know had been really difficult berating the staff so i said just give him my number and big mistake should not have done that i remember one night in particular i think i got back to the hotel room at maybe one o'clock in the morning he called me every five minutes until seven o'clock in the morning oh my gosh he had he had mental health issues but it was just you know the, the way that, that that an incident or a situation can have, you know, both intended and unintended consequences and the, the breadth of, of all of the things that we were dealing with. I mean, you know, I, I consider it to have been an honor to be a part of it. And it just kept it was just more crisis management. Right. So it just continued to roll forward. Um. So I'm winding down the law firm. I'm on the covid task force and then I get a call from these two partners who I had previously worked with at this other place that that I was winding down. And they were like, you know, we're thinking about starting this law firm. You know, what do you think? And I was just sort of like, I'm not really a fan of lawyers, and I'm definitely not a fan of law firms. So, you know, I don't know that this is for me. Um, And they kept talking to me about it, and and I was getting involved. And eventually, um, you know, I had gone into this situation knowing that the law firm was going away, and I had a job offer waiting for me. They knew I was on the task force and so they said, well, wait until you're, until you're done. And when I came off the task force, honestly, you know, talk about a moment that changes you. The types of things that I had to deal with, I appreciated that while I had up until that point, always thought I was an amazing number two, right? Like I'm your wingman. You need me to roll someplace. With you. you need me to place. You want me to be British, whatever you need. Like I will, I am that person. I will do what you need me to do. Love being a partner in crime to somebody else but never thought of myself as a lead, right? Never thought of myself as the person to lead an organization to, you know, be the the, the number one, the head of something. Um, But when I walked away from that task force and I looked back at all the things that I had done, I said to myself, you know, if you can't have confidence in yourself and your abilities at this point, when would that happen? And so the thought of working for someone else coming out of that experience was just, untenable to me. And so I decided I was like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna start this law firm. And I remember um I was in the middle of dealing with some crazy issue on the task force. And all of a sudden I felt this feeling and I ran into the other room and I called both of them and I was like, listen, I have no idea what I'm doing. I've never worked in a law firm. I've never been a partner. I don't know what the hell business development is. <laughs> um, I said and I'm gonna need to be able to say that to you. And that's gonna have to be okay. Like if I call you at three o'clock on a Sunday morning, and say, you know, I my one partner is Denver Edwards. The other one is Patrick Bradford. Patrick, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. I need you to listen to me. I need you to be there for me. And they were like, of course. And, you know, even to this day, and they're, we're all completely crazy. Um, I know that if I call them right now in the middle of this rainstorm and they're in Harlem and I'm here, I know that they will be here for me. And it has made all the difference in the world. And The law firm has become a platform where I can continue to do all the things that I love to do. I can continue to work with governments and help them to shore up what they do. I can, you know, advise companies and people on risk and crisis management. So, you know, thus far it has been a very interesting but but fun ride, and and that's sort of how I moved from, you know, being what I would consider to be a far more traditional lawyer to this other sort of gray area where I'm just always looking for a problem to solve.
0: So thinking about your career pre-launching this law firm where so many opportunities came to you, now you are a lead in an enterprise where essentially you eat what you kill. Mm -hmm. So what was the consideration on that side of the fence, like financially? You know that, okay, I've never been a lead, but this sounds interesting, but there's some very real commercial implications to launching out on your own. So did you have internal dialogue around that Particularly going b- years back to your husband's stance about the in-house counsel job, right, and some financial security there. What was the conversation with your family as well in making that decision from a financial perspective?
1: Well, I'll tell you, it, it wasn't so much that moment because at that moment, you know what what I was being promised to join this enterprise was stability. It was mm-hmm. it was not different, right? We we they were they were starting the law firm with clients and the money that we were making with those clients should have been more than sustainable. It should have been akin to what I was already doing. The more interesting part is, is that three months into it, the client and us parted ways. Mm. And at that point I was like, okay, so uh, what happens here? <laughs> what happens here? What happens now? You know, that's the unexpected moment. We came together as a team and said and talked about what we wanted to do. And I spoke to my husband and said, listen, He was like, if you were the fry cook at McDonald's, you'd be shutting the McDonald's down, going above and beyond, cleaning X, Y, and Z. He was like, so if you're going to work that hard, you might as well work that hard for yourself. And that was really the pivotal conversation where he essentially conveyed to me, not not that I didn't know it, right? I mean, we've been together since we were 19 years old. Um, But what it conveyed to me is that he 100% had my back and would be supportive of anything that I wanted to do. And he actually seemed excited about it. He never had any doubt that I would be successful, that we would be successful, which is constantly amazing to me because, you know, there are still moments where I have incredible moments of self-doubt and I wake up and I sit here in my home office and I'm like, I'm not really sure what I'm supposed to be doing. I feel like, right. So all of that still happens. Um, But... You know, with that, we've just we've just figured it out. I mean, I did not go into the year 2020 thinking that I was going to start a law firm. I was not prepared for it at all. But I will tell you that we have been just incredibly blessed to have relationships that have led to clients. Um, it has changed my life. I mean, it is not the same standard of living that I had previously. But you know, my ability to get up and do whatever I want at any point. And not have to call and ask permission for something, the flexibility to do the things that I love, at least up until, what is today's date? October 26, 2021, it is, it is working and, and, we're, and we're just sort of making it, we're making it work. So I want to talk a bit more about your
0: family dynamic because you've mentioned these positions um, that have called you away geographically or just jobs that are high stress and very demanding and when you, you mentioned like scandal earlier and Olivia Pope, right? There's always this trope with women who are in crisis management or who are fixers and, you know, it's dramatizing over the top. Mm-hmm. But the idea is always they're tortured souls. They have a lot of dysfunction at home mm-hmm. um, and they can't have it all. They're this powerful force in the world that's righting the wrongs that they cannot have a healthy and stable marriage and a healthy and stable relationship with children, if they even have children. For you, it sounds like it has really worked. So do you, felt, do you feel like you've had it all? If I could use that, it's such a cliche, but if I could use that term, do you feel like you've had that? Absolutely not.
1: Um, I read an article the other day, um, uh, Cassandra Brown-Duckett did an interview recently where she talked about work-life balance. And it's a really interesting article. It's short. And she basically said, she's like, you, you know, there is no such thing as work-life balance. She's like, my kids get 30% of you. Maybe mm. would be moments where I need to give them more, but generally speaking, you know, they get 30% of you. And so I am a person who has a very difficult time compartmentalizing Um, I have a very difficult time juggling and balancing, even sometimes appreciating what's really important and what is not. So my husband has dragged me kicking and screaming through this process of understanding and valuing the right things. Um, Because I think left to my own devices, I will just work all the time. Um, My kids are And I don't say this because they're my kids, because I realize you can have a kid who could be annoying as hell. But my kids are actually pretty interesting and they're funny and they're smart and they're thoughtful. And, um, And so they have given me a lot of grace. You know, I have... I have run around doing a lot, trying to give them all the things that I felt as though either I didn't have or wanted to be able to give them, um, you know, activities and sports and traveling and all these other things. There've been a lot of things that I've missed. Um, you know, I, um, my husband is an incredible person, like an, an incredible, just a family man, just a warm, wonderful individual who, I don't even understand why he puts up with me because I am not easy. And I say it to him all the time. I'm like, I don't, even. I, I just, you know, um, but, and, and he has just been so incredibly supportive. I could not have done any of this, right. I mean, he has been a full partner with me in a lot of this and that has, and, and just because I was fortunate enough to have found him at a young age and, and we've been together um, has allowed us to do that. And even with that, even with this incredible partner, and I'm, in New York City, I have really, other than my mom and my sister who live in Rochester, still I have no family here. It's just his family, so you know all, you know everything due to them and and their ability to support. And my mother has done what she can, but even with all of those supports, there are sacrifices and there are mistakes that have been made, and there you know are moments that I will never get back, and so. You know, it. I would never think of it as as me having it all. I think that there have been moments where I have felt more successful than others, and and that will continue. What I what I seek to find um, is moments of balance when I can, um, and you know, and I'm, and and that's a constant work in progress. That is a minute to minute, hour to hour, day to day sort of sort of situation, um, and that's how I navigate it. I love how candid
0: you were about that because I, I think we're, we live in a society where women are, are pressured to look like, look at how great I'm balancing and juggling everything and I'm a great mom all the time and I'm a great wife all the time and I'm a great executive all the time and that's just not really realistic and and particularly for women who are not there yet and but want to be married and want to have children And then they get into those situations and they're trying to give 110% in every area. And when they fall short, there's a lot of guilt tied to that, right? There's,
1: there is, there is so much guilt. And I think though, that the healing and moving past that guilt doesn't happen until you're, until you're ready to make that statement until you're ready to, to, to say out loud, you know, there is really no such thing as balance or having a better appreciation for what that balance is. And so for me, being able to say, yeah, I like to work like working is important to me. And, and, and yes, I don't mind doing it on the weekend and I sleep with my phone under my pillow in case somebody calls me, it's left over in the government, like feeling okay to say that and acknowledge that. And that to me was a step towards saying, okay, now let's, Think about all of the other things that are important and how you're going to balance those things. But I I think that, you know, successful women um, or women who are successful at home, because there are many ways to define success, um, there is, there is that feeling that you should feel guilty, that you should, you know, you still have to do it all, right? Like, you still got to come home and clean. I don't have any housekeeper running around here dusting off these walls. Like, I still have to do all of that. I'm primarily the person who... I always say I'm ops in my family and my husband's human resources. So appointments, you know, getting things done around the house, like that's my, my, my job. Um, I don't know that, you know, and my kids really look to my husband, able and willing to talk to them whatever they want and all of those things. And, and so, you know, just understanding your strengths, your partner's strengths and weaknesses, or if not, what is important to you in your life and, and moving around that. But I think that women really need to show themselves grace because what we naturally do every single day, even without thinking about it, for the most part, is, is that constant juggle and grind of being a woman and all of the expectation that comes from, from, from others to us about what we're able to deal with and carry and, and, and balance. So, um, yeah, that's a great segue, great
0: segue, um, to the question that every guest knows is coming. Describe a time when you had to be extraordinary on an ordinary day.
1: I went to the Dominican Republic with my family and I, um, we, we went out in a kayak. All right. Cause I love the ocean. So I always want to be in the ocean. Can't swim a lick. So we're in this kayak. It's my daughter and I, um, she must've been seven or eight at the time. And so we're in this kayak. And before you know it, we have drifted out to sea. Like there was a rope in the water. We're in the DR. We're on the ocean side. We've drifted over the, the thing. And, and we now, when you look back, you, can, you can't you can even see anybody on the beach. That's how far out we were. A wave comes, capsizes the kayak. So now my daughter and I are we are in the water. Um, and neither of us can swim. And I learned in that moment that a life jacket is not, it doesn't work the way you think it does. Like it's not going to keep your entire upper body above water, right? Deep in the ocean. And we're at a point where it's just the very top of my face that is just above the water. Um, flip the kayak over. Like, okay, my daughter is remarkably calm. Get her into the kayak. Hey, Ashley. And then I go to get in myself, boat capsizes again. So I'm like, Jesus Christ, like I'm looking around. We're even further out. Can't whatever. Flip the kayak back over, get my daughter back in it. A wave comes and separates us. Mm. So now she's floating further and further out into the ocean. I am trying to get to her. I am, there's like reefs in the water. So I'm, you know, just the very tops of my toes are on the reef as I'm trying to get to her. And, you know, finally I'm, I'm able to get close to her. And she says to me, you know, just, just stay where you are, just hold on to the kayak. If you feel the waves, they're bringing us back to the beach. And in that moment, I had to do a couple of things. I had to not panic. Um, because there's, there, you know, there's just no, there's just no benefit to, to being panicking. I grasped in that moment, how incredible my daughter was, mm. the peace of mind that she had. Um, it was, it was just an, an unbelievable moment. The long and the short of it is many kayaks had, had capsized and they were running around trying to get all of them and bring them back, which is why they were so late getting to us. But in that moment, it really forced me to focus on what was important and um, which was my family and being there for them and and just everything sort of related to me being a mother, which is not something that I, um, it was not something I ever thought I would be. Mm -hmm. I did not, when I saw my journey for my life, I thought I saw myself as being a workaholic and alone. I did not think of myself as having a family. And so, you know, I don't know how extraordinary I was. I I really think of it as how extraordinary she was in that, in that moment and all of the things that I've learned about, you know, myself as a, as a, as a woman. And I think that would probably be the moment that comes to mind. That's good. What's your ideal vision for the next phase of your life? You know, I I want my family to be successful and, and all of that stuff. But when I think about this business that we have formed, I have a very specific vision. I want to be a place, and when we sat down to form the firm, for me, this is what I was thinking. I wanted to create a space where anyone could come to work and and be 100% themselves. And the expectation is that they're going to be themselves and that they're going to bring all of their experiences, all of their backgrounds, all of that to the table to work together as a team, to support each other, and to deliver for our clients. And so what I'm really most excited about is building that firm, building that business. It doesn't even matter that's a law firm, to be perfectly honest, but building that business to be to others what I didn't have, right? The mentors that I that I really wanted, someone to sit me down and show me how to do certain things, the person who pulls you aside and says, you've got a new suit, you gotta cut that little X that's at the bottom, right? just all of all of those things. Like I want to be a place where all you have to be is smart and work hard and, and you know that you'll have the opportunities and you know, you'll, you'll be able to do a lot of things. That I think has become very important to me as I, as I think about my, my journey forward. And just to continue doing what I'm doing, right? To support women, women leaders, and to continue to seek ways to have a positive impact on the world. It's just the thing that drives me.
0: And I, I think before we let you get out of here, we have to touch on this point, which is tangentially related to this. You and I were having a, a bit of conversation before this um, about being in the corporate space. And you know we know NAMWOLF exists, National Association of Minority Women-Owned Law Firms. When you go to these big corpor- corporations, it's an initiative, right? And, and some of them to give business to minority and women-owned law firms and they get the the, the plaques for doing so. But we know when you look at a full spend for a large corporation, that that large corporation that is often a very small sliver of outside counsel budget, right? It's always got to be this coordinated choreograph thing for our firms to get that work. Do you think that your law firm, your business is positioned to really break, str- to, to make strides and break barriers in terms of, yes, we are a mi- minority, a Black-owned, a woman-owned law firm, but we can service anybody and we have the resource to do that. Do you think that you're prime to really break through those obstacles?
1: Yeah, I think we are. And I, and I think we've had some, we've had some progress in, in those areas. I think that, you know, we tried to create a place that was different sort of in three ways with our, you know, very in your face approach about how we incorporate diversity into how we practice and what we do. Um, we, we tend to operate in different areas, right? We do antitrust and corporate bankruptcy and restructuring areas that are a little more nuanced and different than your average firm. And then the third thing is we were very thoughtful about the kind of firm we were building in terms of our reliance on technology, our ability to scale up and scale down depending on the size of the matter, all with the customer in mind, right? Like what can we do to keep our overhead low so that we can have discounts and we can pass on to the clients, right? Thinking about alternative fee arrangements, all of those things. We sort of looked at what do clients need in 2020 and try to design a law firm for that. And so when we're having conversations with, and, and we've been blessed to have conversations with very large companies, the conversation that we're having is a, is a little different because, and, and we're also, you know, I think collectively, I can't remember how many, experience we we have but it's decades of experience right so you've got your quintessential lawyer in patrick you've got your business-minded guru in denver and with me you've got that eye on crisp uh, on, on crisis management and risk and 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 that sort of piece and you know the way that we talk about that with all of those other components that i described Um, it's, it's something new and fresh, I think that has been, that has helped us to become successful. So, you know, we're, and we constantly drive ourselves to make sure that we don't relax into being the traditional lawyer or law firm. And that takes thought, right? It it takes thought and focus and concentration, but we're determined to do it. And that is a great place to end on. Thank you. So tell the people where they can find you online. So, uh, the law firm is Bradford Edwards and Farlack LLP, and you can find us at www.bradfordedwards.com. Awesome. And are you on LinkedIn personally?
0: We do a lot of networking around here. Yes.
1: Yes. No, absolutely. I am under my name Camille Joseph Farlack, and I'm happy to connect with any of your listeners. Well, let me just say thank you to former
0: guest and friend of the show, Denver Edward Denver Edwards. I said this before we got started. Any recommendation from Denver is a great recommendation. I knew this was <laughs> going to be good. I don't know what you were
1: worried about. This was awesome. No. <laughs> well, you're this is all due to you. You're you're amazing. Thank you. Thank you for for being as good as you are and and for your grace in the conversation. I I really enjoyed speaking with you. Thank you likewise to our listeners. You know
0: what to do from here. I think we are fortunate in that we've built a community of Black professionals who we're broadening our networks at all times. We're expanding into corporate space. We're in corporate fields. So if you're at that level of your career where you have a seat at the table and have an opportunity to bring in new law firms for service, please reach out to Camille. If you are a little bit earlier in the process and just looking for a connection with a Black female lawyer, you know what to do as well. We've been pushing this since the very early episodes of the show reach out, ask for coffee, ask for a conversation. We bring value to the table when we help each other and we help help ourselves advance as a community and as a people. So make sure you do that. If you've enjoyed this episode, tell somebody about it, like, share, subscribe, and comment. And as always, remember to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Take care.